Amen. Good morning, church. Happy Easter. Y'all look beautiful this morning. Oh, so glad you are here to celebrate with us the empty grave. Christ is risen. Christ our Lord is risen today. And for that, we say hallelujah. We rejoice. Welcome. If you are uh, worshiping with us online, I'm Rachel, the pastor here. So glad that you are here with us to celebrate the Easter resurrection uh, this year. Before we get uh, into it, I want to go ahead and release our kids for Revolution Kids. You guys are actually going to be rejoining us at the end of the service for communion. Uh, Mr. Matt, I know, has got a pretty cool Mr. Matt. Scavenger hunt. It's my husband. Good job. Uh, pretty cool scavenger hunt, a quest to find the empty tomb in store for the kids. And parents, just a heads up, Rev Kids are going to be rejoining you in that one of the last songs to celebrate communion with us this morning. Um, as part of our body here for Easter Sunday. So our reading of the resurrection story this morning comes from the account from the Gospel of John. I'm going to read this for us this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This is my favorite account of the Easter story. 
It's the longest of the four. It provides so many vivid details. This is my favorite account of the Easter story. So many of those extra details, it feels like you're right there with Mary and the disciples, stooping into the tomb, running alongside them in the narrative with them. You can feel the building suspense and confusion and excitement. What does this mean? This is my favorite of the resurrection narratives. Some of those extra details, I don't know, like the funny detail, like it's important that we know that Peter was beaten to the tomb. (laughs) The other disciple outran him, the one Jesus loved. It's important that we know that. Mary arrives to the tomb, the scripture says, while it was still dark. I think it's important to know that. It's part of Holy Saturday when when silence persisted, when darkness hung in the air, when death seemed to have won. And before that first dawn, before the first light, Mary goes to the tomb. In the Gospel of John, not with anointing oils to prepare the body, but likely in grief to be near the grave of her friend. It's as if, you you know, we know that our loved ones are not there when we go to a cemetery to be near to the ones that we love. We know that, but somehow, somewhere in our grief, we're hoping to feel maybe comfort in the presence of being near the marker. She goes in that sense of grief while it is still dark. That's an important detail, yes, as a certain time of day, but also as a theme of sort of that cover of darkness, right? In, con- in confusion, in her grief. There's a theme throughout the Gospel of John of sort of this play of knowing and not knowing, this play between darkness and light. And many times that we see darkness or, or, or light references in this Gospel, it's often in terms of people understanding or not understanding, You can see that theme played out right here three times. Mary says, I do not know where they have laid Jesus. I do not know where he is. I I do not understand what has happened. Even the disciple doesn't understand what the scriptures have said, that Jesus will rise again. This is the Gospel of John, of course, that begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was light for all people. It's the gospel of John that says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. It's the gospel of John who calls Jesus and he says, I am the light of the world. It's in the gospel of John that Nicodemus goes to Jesus while it is dark in the cover of darkness as a religious Jewish leader seeking understanding and truth knowing that if he's to be seen questioning this rabbi in public, it could mean really major problems for him. It's the Gospel of John that has this theme of darkness and light, of knowing and not knowing. And I love this resurrection account and how it includes those themes here. Mary goes to the tomb while it is still dark. But by far the reason this is my favorite resurrection story is because it takes place in a garden. Some of us who have traveled to Israel, Palestine, have been to that garden tomb. It's a really sort of a 
beautiful setting. It has that aesthetic appeal of what it might have been like. A lot of people believe that that's not actually the place where Jesus might have been buried, but it, it has that sort of feel it's only in the gospel that it's sort of gospel of John that it's particularly said that they are in a garden. I love that about this account. Any of you guys have a garden here? Maybe flowers, vegetables. It's beginning to be that time of year where we are going to start preparing the ground for the new plants, the new the new things that we will be planting in the weeks to come. Y'all know that Matt and I are, are big into gardening. And when I say gardening, when I say we, I really mean Matt. I say that a lot. We do these things. We, we. It's often Matt. I do the flower beds out front, and I call that my, that's my garden. That's where I take care of things. It's very small compared to the garden in the back where Matt grows many of our vegetables that he then makes into salsa and marinara and all kinds of cool things. That's Matt. So I claim to be a gardener because of my flowers. Gardening for me is a deeply spiritual practice. Tending to the soil, pulling weeds, pruning my rose bushes, enjoying the new growth. I have some rockers on my front porch. And when I have time to sit there (laughs) and to marvel, it's getting darker later. So it's helpful after the kids go to bed sometimes in the summer. Matt and I will sit out front in those rocking chairs and just sort of enjoy our, our garden, our flowers in the front. It's a deeply spiritual practice for me, no matter kind of what season of life, no matter, no matter how many little sets of hands I have, quote, helping me or slowing down progress. No, it's great. No matter whatever stage of life I'm in, it is still a deeply spiritual practice for me. Throughout this season of Lent, if you all have been with us, you know that we've been talking about the seven deadly sins, referring to them as vices, and taking a look each week at a different vice, of these different ways that sometimes we get tripped up in our own habits and hang-ups and sin that, that keep us from, from making progress when we're chasing after Christ and, and becoming more like him, and our sanctification, right, our discipleship process. I've invited you into these practices of self-examination, in hopes of leaving room for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, to see where we might be missing that mark, where we might be marked by, by sin, where we might need to confess and repent so that we might be healed. It's in the Gospel of Luke that says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's been our way to remind ourselves of this. As we looked at these vices of pride and wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, it's been a reminder that we too are among the sick and the sinful in need, in desperate need of divine grace. Shared this on Friday night in our Good Friday service. I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a reminder of who among us is without sin. Even when we think we've been running well, like y'all are here, right? We're doing something, right? Even when we think we've been running well, that we've got things together, it's, it's been a humbling experience for me, to say the least, to, to move through these vices with you and to be reminded that we too are in need 
of a divine healer. I, too, am in need of healing. St. Augustine is the one who said the problem of sin, the, the problem with all of this is our own sense of pride. It's our own wills. It's our own egos that are, are bent towards sinning. That's what needs healing. Before the fall, they were, they were perfectly aligned with God and God's plan and God's love. But once sin entered in, they became sort of curved in on themselves, sort of bent in and, and bent toward, prone toward sinning. So it's our egos, it's our sense of self, it's our wills. That's what needs healing. Paul says it this way, I can't even do what is right. I, I, I know what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. It's Paul's very wordy way of agreeing with St. Augustine. <laughs> that we know what we want to do, but we are not able to do it on our own because we are bent in. We are filled with pride, the root of all of our vices. John Calvin, another theologian, asked, what can man do? Man, so far from being just before God is but rottenness and a worm, abominable and vain, drinking in iniquity like water. Gee whiz, John. What can man do? In studying these vices together, it has not been my intent to make us feel small or depraved or unworthy. It's not been my intent to make us feel weak or worm-like, as John Calvin describes it. It's from this that he sort of develops his understanding of total depravity. That's a whole other theological realm that we as Wesleyans like to cling to grace, and we're going to get there. It has not been my intention to make you feel small or, or worthless. But sometimes, the truth is, we do that to ourselves. We carry around shame, a whole lot of shame, that we aren't supposed to be. We hear the expectation from others, the weight and expectation from the world, and, and we carry, we, we know our, our mistakes, they've, they've been ever before us. We, we know where we've messed up, that we've not always been right, and, and sometimes we beat ourselves up more than anyone else. We carry that shame with us. How often do we feel maybe how John is describing? It makes me think of that psalm, that prayer in Psalm 22 that Jesus prays on the cross. God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? How often do we feel that way? It's in verse 6 of that same prayer from Psalm 22 that says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Too often we beat our own selves up for our shortcomings. Or too often the church, consumed by, by teaching on sin and particular behaviors that are just identifying in other people and in our neighbors, but not necessarily ourselves, consumed by that, we've, we've made the mistake of also preaching and teaching about shame. But in Jesus Christ, there, 
There is no condemnation. There is no shame. Because here, I think, is what John Calvin forgets. I'm going to be bold and disagree with this historic theologian. Here's what I think he forgets and what we too often forget too. When we say that we're scorned and forsaken, we're riddled with sin, we're identified by our suffering, by the mistakes that we've made, we carry this guilt and shame. When we feel nothing but like a worm, we forget this. We forget what God can do with worms. (laughs) Bet you didn't know I was going to say that. (laughs) Seriously, worms. We forget what God can do with dust, with the things of the earth like worms. Now hang with me for a second, because y'all are going to remember that one Easter where your pastor talked about worms. (laughs) Yesterday afternoon, uh, it was beautiful outside, so we thought, here's an opportunity. Take all the kids outside, and let's see. Let's play in the garden. Let's like let's start. We so we started just preparing unexpectedly. Matt and I started preparing the ground for the mulch and the flowers and the plants that would come. And you know, kind of taking out those preliminary weeds. And Logan with his own little sets of gloves, helping. Decided to pull up. We have a weed barrier, one of those weed blankets in the front that had just gotten ripped up and torn apart, and it just hadn't looked good for a long time. So I said, let's let's pull that up. And as we were pulling that up and and sort of putting some of that decomposed old mulch back into the soil, I discovered the coolest thing of all. Worms. (laughs) You know where I'm going. I see some of you cringing over there. I'll be honest. After it rains and they're all kind of washed out onto the sidewalk, not a fan of worms. But when I find them in my soil where they hadn't been before, I am very excited. (laughs) And as we pulled it back and showing it to Logan, and he's, I say, look, here, come, Logan, here's another one. And he wants to poke them because they wiggle about. I say, oh, leave them, leave them. They're helpers. I was so excited because these worms indicate that the soil at our house is healthier than it was three years ago when we started planting here. Because worms are like magic to the soil. They are. Did you know this? You probably did. They are like magic. They do crazy things that like enrich the value and composition of the soil. They stimulate microbial activity. They, they mix and aggregate the soil. They can increase the porosity of the soil. And you could sort of see as we pulled back the blanket, their, their little, like, um, what's the word? Channels, tunnels that they had that allow the water to seep in. Thanks, Dad. Words are hard, right? You could see it, you know. (laughs) They improve the water-holding capacity then of the soil because of those tunnels. They provide those channels for root growth. They bury and shred plant residue. In short, worms are like magic for our soil. Oh, yeah, I forgot. There you go, Melanie. (laughs) I saw cringe. Like, look at all that science. Look at all that. I don't even understand it. Amazing. Writer and seminarian Jeff Chu calls this the theology of the compost. The theology of the compost. He says worms are engines of redemption. Yeah, worms. 
because they devour the things of death and nourish the ground for new life. They take and eat the fungi, the microbes, the dead things, the bacteria that can even cause diseases. And they produce out in their excrement nourishment that nourishes the soil. They are a powerful symbol of redemption. How God takes death and the things of death, like our sin and our suffering, the ways that we hurt each other, the ways that we harm ourselves, and they, he transforms it. God transforms that through Jesus Christ. A theology of compost, the breaking down of things of death into elements that will yield new life. The story of the worm, he says, is actually the story of God turning fear to courage, sorrow to joy, death to life. Friends, gardening is a deeply spiritual practice for me because in the garden, we are reminded and I am reminded that God has written the story of redemption into creation itself. It's this time of year that lends itself really well to being reminders of us of new life and grace that are all around us. My sister has a, a mama duck that's, you know, built a nest on her front, uh, on her front flower bed. She's going to have baby ducks soon. It's a sign of new life. The trees are blooming and budding, signs of new life. I'm hoping I get a bird nest in my backyard this year. Maybe you have chosen nicer things that can be symbols of redemption for you this time of year. I have chosen worms. <laughs> going to remember the Easter that your pastor talked about worms. They are engines of redemption. In the garden, we are reminded that God, too, has empowered us lowly worms <laughs> made from the dust of the ground turned what was ugly and dying to what is now lovely and beautiful and life-giving through the power of Jesus Christ. When Mary goes to the tomb while it is still dark, we should recall in our heads another garden encounter. An encounter where the Spirit hovered over the darkness. New life. I'm all for it. When the Spirit, he should have gotten them on a race. They're looking for the tomb, y'all. They're looking for the empty tomb. They are literally a scavenger hunt in every corner upstairs, looking for signs of the empty tomb. Engines of redemption. We should recall in our heads another creation narrative, the first one, when the Spirit hovered over the darkness and God said, let there be light. We should recall the garden of Eden, the first creation story. And we should remember that this too, in the garden with Jesus and with Mary, is another creation account. It's new creation. It's recreation. It's redemption. It's not just res like resuscitation, right, bringing dead things just back to life. No, it's resurrection. It's transformation. It's complete newness. It's new creation. Mary doesn't even recognize Jesus. Did you all catch that detail? She doesn't even recognize Jesus standing before her. She confuses him with a gardener. 
And you know, I don't really think that was Mary being confused. I think that was Mary being prophetic. That it's Jesus Christ who is the gardener, the resurrected Christ who tends to new life and new growth, the resurrected Christ who prepares the soil of our lives and our hearts, who shears away dead branches, who who prunes others, other branches to tend to new and abundant growth. Mary goes in the shadow of the dark when she's confused and and grief-stricken, scared, doesn't understand until, doesn't even recognize Jesus, until what? Jesus calls her by name, Mary. Like the good shepherd in the Gospel of John who knows his sheep by name and they recognize the sound of their voice, the sound of his voice, and they follow. It's like elsewhere in the Gospel of John when Jesus calls Lazarus by name and he comes out of his tomb. He calls Mary by name and she recognizes him, calls him teacher and Lord clings to him, overwhelmed, overcome with joy and adoration. And friends, it's us here today who Jesus knows and loves and calls you by name as well. He called her name. And in the presence of Jesus, Mary's grief and sorrow turned to joy In the presence of Jesus, we experience the freedom from our sin and redemption and transformation. In the presence of Jesus, the new kingdom is taking root. Because the resurrected Christ is our gardener who calls us, who leads us, who tends to us, who yields forth new life and new growth from the dead things of our life that we like to stay stuck in that we take on ourselves when Jesus didn't mean for us to. We get hung up in thinking that our worst mistakes and and who we've been are are who defines us, what the world says about us. We carry the shame, this this weight of of all that weighs us down. And and Jesus comes and says, no, I want to cut that away from you so you can continue to thrive and grow and live in the new kingdom, the new garden that I'm preparing What the story of Easter does, the story of the empty grave, is it reminds us that God's grace is bigger than all of our sins and shame and that change and miracles of newness of life are possible now because of Jesus Christ. John Calvin was a brilliant mind in a lot of ways, but I disagree with him on the state of humanity. Yes, we have our ways that we are prone to sin. But we have grace that is greater than all of that. Grace that redeems us, grace that sets you free, grace that makes us engines of redemption because of Jesus Christ. Throughout this series, we've been singing a new, a new song together. Everything is changing now. It's been a song of hope that I've wanted us to sing every week, even, you know, during Lent, because Sundays can be many Easter's. That as we talk, talk through some of this uh, deep sin stuff and, and vice and some heavy topics and the darkness of the world, that I, want, I wanted us to be reminded that 
because of Jesus Christ, everything is changing now. Because he's the great gardener, because he's been brought back to life, resurrected from the dead, everything is possible. This has been a song of hope for us that we find power in the resurrected Christ, that when Jesus walks in and calls us by name, we are free. And where the presence of the Lord is, there is freedom. So I wanna invite you to stand this morning and let's just celebrate that truth with this song that we've uh, grown to know. Your breath. 
grab a seat. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and who seek now to live at peace with Christ and at peace with one another. We've been talking a lot about confession and and pardon throughout this series, and and as we approach this table, this is what we do yet again, is, is that we confess the ways that we have fallen short or, or not loved God with our whole heart when we failed to be an obedient church. And we come forward every week remembering these signs of redemption that Christ has given to us. We remember that night that he took bread and a, and a cup with his friends that last supper and he, he broke that bread and he poured from that cup He gave thanks to God the Father, and he said, Take and eat these things. These are going to be symbols for you forever. That what I say is true, that there is a different way, that life is possible, that you are loved, that you are worthy, that I have made you new, that you are forgiven, that you are set free. And I don't know about you, but there are some weeks I need that reminder every week, which is why we come every week as a habit to remember this good news that is true for you in times that we want to hold on to that shame and that guilt, that sin and that suffering. Christ says, come to my table. Remember who you are. Remember that you are loved. That I have called you by name and you are mine. So Christ our Lord invites all here to his table, all who love him. You do not have to be a member of this church. This is not our table. This is not the table of the United Methodist Church, but this is the Lord's table. And you are invited to come and to experience the redeeming love, the real presence of Christ who is here with us now. As you come, we're going to have two servers, one on either side. You're going to be given a small cup and a cracker to partake. And as we respond this morning, you can do so here in your seats for prayer or in a couple of our prayer corners here. If you are visiting with us, I just want to say welcome. I'm so glad you're here, and I would love a chance to connect with you after the service. If not, you can also fill out a Connect card in the seat back in front of you. If you're worshiping online, would love for you to fill one out online as well through our website so that we can be in touch with you about the ways that you could get connected here at Revolution Church and learn more about what God is doing here. This is also the time that we respond with our own tithes and gifts as a sort of service and worship to God of all that we have. God is yours, and I want to be a part of the the redeeming work that you're doing of building your kingdom here through Revolution Church. You can do that here in our buckets here or on our mobile app and website as well. As we prepare our hearts to approach this table, would you just pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for who you are and for this almost inexplicable gift of love and grace that you have given us and and that we celebrate here this morning the resurrected Christ who makes all things new and also makes all things possible. God, although we celebrate Easter this morning, that everything is changing now, that your new kingdom is breaking in, we are also all so aware that darkness persists. 
And sometimes, like Mary, we, we approach this sort of hesitantly while it is still dark. And we hold that this morning here as, as well, Lord, that while it is still dark in many ways, we cling to your promises. We see signs of your new life and hope that are coming. And God, our prayer this morning is that you would transform us so that we would also be signs of your hope and life that is coming. Would you empower us to light up the darkness with you, the light of the world, by our love, by our actions, by our grace, by our forgiveness that we extend to others, that people would know that we are with you because of the way that we love. Would you allow us, God, to be your hands and feet, that we may experience your transformation here this morning. We ask, oh God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here on these gifts of wine. Truly make them be for us the body of blood of Christ that we may be for the world. Signs of your glory. By your spirit, oh God, make us one with you. Make us one with each other. Make us one in ministry to all the earth until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at that great big heavenly banquet in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, thank, thank you for the foretaste of that feast here this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The table is set. You have heard the invitation. Won't you come?